Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 1 and John chapter 16. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ." as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. John chapter 16, verse 8 through 15. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we God, give us the, the humility to come to your word this morning, um, Father, give, uh, give me clarity of mind and thought and, and expression, and uh, Father, open our hearts to, to walk in the gracious gift of repentance and faith that you've given us. Father, I ask all these things for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. And as, as we looked at those uh, two passages there. First of all, we're just going to pull some themes from those uh, two verses. So we're not going to do a kind of a deep dive exposition on those two passages, but just pull some, from, some themes from those and then look at a few other verses. Uh, as we began last week, we began our fall vision series that we've called this year Christ the Lord. Um, it's a time, again, just to set the stage, kind of set the room, tell us where we're at in this moment. It's a time to, to kind of reset or renew or refresh or zero in on particular aspects of what it means to be the church called Christ the Lord Church. So today, I'm going to introduce, as we continue this thought, this, this series I want to introduce you to a new term that we're going to use, you're going to see regularly, I think, uh, and plan to, called a distinctive. A distinctive. So first, I need to define what a distinctive is, but before I define what a distinctive is, I, I want to tell you that nothing is changing uh, for Christ the Lord and for Christ the Lord and its leaders. This is not a new direction. It's just a, a returning or a, a different way of saying things that we've been saying uh, for over a decade now. Uh, I think we've just simply discovered maybe a, a helpful way to communicate 
uh, or a more helpful way to communicate and describe what we believe and, and how we intend to lead and, and what we expect from covenant members as well. So what's a distinctive? Well, just it's pretty simple. A distinctive is something that sets something apart from something else. It's something that sets something apart from something else. You remember the game, Which Doesn't Belong? Anybody remember that game, Which Does Not Belong? Um, I tried to find some, something politically snarky to say here, but I couldn't. The best I could come up with was like, like three different rectangles in a circle. Which one doesn't belong? That was the best thing I could come up with. They might be all shapes, but the circle is distinct from the three rectangles. They're different. So to us as leaders and elders, it's something that sets us apart from something else or from many other something else's, if you will. That something, though, is not just something that sets us apart from the world. Those hopefully are pretty obvious. But also, not just what sets us apart from the world, but maybe what sets us apart from even other churches. So not just the world, but what's this, what sets us apart from majority of other churches. And, and, and that's why part of this gets important. If majority of the churches were faithful in these distinct ways, then it wouldn't set us apart. We'd be more like the rectangles than the circle. But since many, majority even, are not distinct in this way, it's important to draw attention to this distinction. Now, as we think about a distinction, I want to give you this idea of a, a moment in time. Because distinctions are kind of tied to a moment in time. When we say a distinction, what we do not mean is this is what's most important to us in a sort of transcendent way. Meaning this distinctive is most important to us and it will be most important to us for all of time. Although a couple of our distinctives certainly are transcendent in that way. But they are more of a moment in time determined set of important truths for us to say. You see this all throughout church history, especially with the church councils, Council of Nicaea, Council of Trent, and so on, where there was in that moment of time, there was something really important that needed to be said, that needed attention drawn to. What I mean in another, in another way of saying this is every season of life requires the church to speak more loudly about certain issues or ideas or beliefs. Because of man's sinfulness, Different periods in history requires the church to draw to the surface important aspects of Christ's lordship in order to speak directly to the problems of our day. What that draws a distinction. And so there's a point, there's a measure which this, what is a distinct, what's important to be made a distinction today may not mean to be brought to the surface in say five or 10 or 20 years. So let me give you some examples. 70 years ago, proud, wealthy businessmen running their homes like tyrants was something to speak against. Now, it's effeminate men letting their houses be ruled by the world. That's a, that's a different issue. It was different 70 years ago. 
than it is today. Or another example, 50 years ago, destruction of marriage by promiscuity and fornication and multiple heterosexual partners has now given way to transgender chaos. This is a difference. That, pre- that was a distinction that, needed, that should have been drawn out 50 years ago. Now the distinction that should be drawn out is different. 40 years ago, another example, 40 years ago, specifically in the 80s and the 90s, it was churches ran by what we would call church growth or marketing strategies, made famous by guys like Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, where it was just, how can you best get people into seats? Now, it's really a different issue. It's more like supposed gospel-centered churches chucking out other important doctrines out the window, all for the sake of, well, that's not the gospel, and so therefore it's not important. So a distinctive or a distinction is something we believe sets us apart in a way that is important for this moment in time. It's something important for us to make known and make clear. To use like Nehemiah terms here, it's, it's a brick in the wall of God's kingdom that we are building that needs to be highlighted or reinforced. We're saying that brick right there is important. We need to make sure we notice that brick. Again, this means in maybe two years, five years, ten years, our distinctives might change, and they probably should. We also believe it's important to do for people considering Christ the Lord as their church. We don't want them to get in and any surprises on big issues down the road. We'd rather bring them up front, make them known up front. And you say, well, where's the biblical warrant for, for distinctives? I would encourage you to read somewhere between Genesis and Revelation. So as we come to a distinctive and we think about Christianity today, not the terrible magazine, but as we think about Christianity in our world today, which brand, which flavor, which expression of Christianity is right? That's that's a good question to ask. There is so much confusion today, so much uncertainty. What about this church and that church? What about this tribe of people or that tribe of people? What if they're right? And what if I'm wrong? Now listen, most, most churches, many churches, will preach that Jesus is the only way to heaven, but then proceed to get just about everything else wrong. So which one's right? Listen, a church can be Jesus' quote, the way to heaven, and yet deny much of what we're calling historical biblical Christianity. You can slap a whole lot of other things onto what Jesus is the way to heaven, and then make the way to life is anything but Jesus. What defines life is anything but Jesus. Sadly, though, I think in our day, we think this question's a hard question. Which brand, which flavor, which expression of Christianity is right? It's really not if you know your Bible well. The problem in our day is that most Christians are not serious students of the Word. And so we get confused. 
And which brand, which flavor, which expression? You know, the church landscape in our day, I'll just give you some examples. It's full of church, what I would call pragmatists, where they tell you that you need Jesus to go to heaven, and then they tell you that you can live the Christian life apart from Jesus if you just do these five steps to a better whatever. There's also many supposed reformed churches. We'll be speaking more about that word in a minute. But even many reformed churches where they tell you that they believe in God's sovereignty and the authority of Scripture, yet they have imported cultural ideologies like critical theory or the authority of someone's experience over and above the authority of the Word of God. Or churches where the primary message of, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. God can make everything better. Just come be happy with Jesus. Where there's like this constant undertone or unspoken phrase of, you're all just victims, come Jesus, we'll make it better. But they forget that Jesus says in Luke 13, that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Certainly, we're victims in a, in a culture that is evil. And we are, in some ways, victims of other people's sin. But that is not our primary problem. Our primary problem is that we stand unholy before a holy God, requiring repentance and faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our primary problem. That should be the primary undertone and the primary thing that is spoken in a church. Listen, the predominant reality in the church landscape in our day is, this, is the same as the rebellious people spoken of in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 9. Let me read 9 through 11. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, who say to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth words, prophesy illusions, Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Just like those in Isaiah's day are much of the same, is, is, is very true of much of the supposed quote-unquote church today. They don't want historical, biblical Christianity. They want a brand that will be smooth to their ears. How is it smooth? Because it doesn't talk about the Holy One of Israel. Just the therapeutic one that sounds like the Gospel but denies its power. And how do these people respond? Who want this? Who want this smooth teaching? They tell the seers, don't see for us. We can already see it ourselves. They tell the prophets, don't tell us what is right. We already know what is right. And they try to shut them up by all means necessary. And then they will go find churches where the leaders will deliver the goods. So which brand, which flavor of expression of Christianity is right? You know, most churches' marketing strategy today, it's funny, hopefully, well, hopefully you've not seen this, but hopefully the point communicates. It goes a little something like this. Come to our church. We're not like your grandma's church. Right? Y'all heard that? It's essentially, that's what's happening. That's why the fog machines, that's why the, the, you know, everything else goes with that. 
come to our church. We're not like your grandma's church. Well, our goal is to be maybe not your grandma's church, but to be grandma's church. That's our goal. We believe that this moment in history needs us to say that we believe in historical biblical Christianity. So what we mean by that? I'm going to give you some big words. As I was reminded by my wife this past week, I need to make sure we define these words and define them well. So here's some more word lessons. Declarative, objective, historical, and normative. There you go. I even put it up on the screen for you. Declarative, objective, historical, and normative. I'm going to fly through these definitions. So if you don't catch them, you can listen to the podcast. We believe that the Christian faith is founded upon the objective and declarative realities of Jesus and His work as described in the Holy Scripture, and that those realities are to be confessed and believed as the only normative rule for the Christian. As much as I want to repeat that, we should move on. So by declarative. Here's what I mean by declarative. Meaning they're finished, done, and can be spoken of as a reality. They're finished, done, and can be spoken of as having happened. can declare it so with certainty. It's objective. Meaning it's factual and not influenced by feelings, personal opinions, or life experiences. It is a reality outside of ourselves with no regard to ourselves, meaning not influenced by. It is objective, apart from how you and I might think or feel about it. Joe Rigney is quoting another article, said this, a person with an identity tied to nothing, not even their own biology, can be led to believe almost anything. And that's the world we're in right now, where, where what we know is not tied to anything objective. And so when a people, even a nation, have sets of beliefs that are not tied to anything objective, they can be led to believe anything. Historical. What do we mean by historical? We mean celebrated and declared by the church historically. We don't need ideologies that are novel or new. Our goal is to not be innovators, but instead to stand on the shoulders of the historic church. Like I said, your grandma's church. Well, maybe not your grandma's church, but grandma's church. Normative rule. Normative rule. It is the standard... It's the rule, it's the norm. It's the standard, it's the rule, it's the norm. It's, this is what's normative. We believe historical, biblical Christianity is what's normative. Listen, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but you need to understand this, that those who would hold that the Scriptures declare objective, historical, normative, what we're saying, you need to understand that we're being called crazy or fanatics, that our world is on fire, that our ship is about to crash, that we're a cult, that we're dangerous. But listen, those who do not follow Christ 
are the ones on fire and are the crazy ones. They're the cult. Listen, you can't set something on fire that's already on fire. It's so easy for us as Christians, because of the onslaught from the culture, to begin thinking or doing that, you know, that popular phrase right now, gaslighting, where you like think, oh, maybe I, maybe I am the problem, and maybe, maybe what we do believe is, is the problem, and maybe we are not tolerant like we should be, and maybe blah, 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 blah. Maybe we're the crazy ones. The world is the ones on fire. Historical, biblical Christianity, we believe, is the norm, the standard, the rule. It's what governs. I want to give you two more terms, and these will be the last two big terms I give you today. They're reformed and confessional. Reformed and confessional. The first one, reformed. Let me go back and reread for you the Ephesians 1 chapter rather quickly. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, uh, yeah, all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Again, just looking at some main themes here. Listen, the idea of reformed means a lot of things today. So we're going to take our time to define what we mean by that. Also, let me be clear on this too. As we work through things like what does it mean to be reformed, this doesn't mean that every member is going to agree on every last little point, even in the following. Indeed, in many of these points, you don't even have to be in agreement to be a member. But this is where your elders are, and where future elders and leaders must be. And this is where, by God's grace, the largest mass of people in this church is at. So what do we mean by reformed? I'm going to give you a handful. Let's see. There's six items here. First one is this. Sufficiency and authority of the Scriptures. The sufficiency and the authority of the Scriptures is what it means to be reformed unapologetically reformed. We believe in the sufficiency and authority of the Scriptures. You can go read later, 2 Timothy 3.16 is a great passage. I'm not going to spend much time here because I'm going to actually be preaching on this as a distinctive next week. So I'm going to treat the sufficiency and authority of the Scriptures next week alone just as distinctive number two. When you don't believe in the sufficiency and the authority of the Scriptures, you know the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? where it says, tune my heart to sing thy grace. When you don't believe in the sufficiency and the authority of the Scripture, that song becomes a little more like this. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune thy words to fit my grace. But listen, we don't tune the Scriptures to sing our praises, but we tune our hearts to sing thy praise. 
which is enough work in and of itself. Amen? It's so hard. Now this distinguishes us from even other supposedly gospel-centered churches that want to embrace all sorts of social ideologies and such and, and bring them in as authoritative, sometimes on par with and above the Scriptures. Second, sovereignty of God. Again, more on sufficiency and authority next week. Two, sovereignty of God. Ephesians 1.10, let me read that for you. We just read it a moment ago. As, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. You also saw in there where He says, according to the purpose of His will in verse 5. And if you didn't think that that included all things, when He gets to verse 10, He works all things to the purpose of His will. And just in case we need a clarity on what all things means, He means things in heaven and things on earth. I mean, Paul is building this to make sure we understand he is sovereign over all things. If you read on into verse 11, the second part of that in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Him who works all things, again, according to the counsel of His will. If He is to unite all things in Christ, then He must have all authority and power and dominion hence last week's sermon, over all things in order to accomplish this task. Even in this passage, Paul teaches God's sovereignty even over our salvation. Nothing is outside of His sovereign hand. To be reformed means you believe in the sovereignty of God. Three, salvation by grace alone. Salvation by grace alone. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now listen, as we talk through these things, understand that we're going to be at different places as we journey through tough doctrines. You don't have to, to be where I'm at in order to be a member of, of Christ the Lord. You don't have to be where Rusty's at to be, you know, you just have to be willing to be taught this direction. Salvation by grace alone. What does that mean if you actually believe salvation by grace alone, not the, the cheap, shallow versions of this today? It means you believe that man is totally depraved. That man is completely helpless in his sinful nature. That he is under the judgment and wrath of God and can in no way please God. It means that man does not naturally seek God on his own until God graciously prompts him to do so. Listen, we just sang that in the song before. I can do nothing to cause myself to live. That's what that phrase means. It means I am totally depraved. Not utterly depraved, that's different, but totally depraved. Utterly depraved means I am as evil as I could be. No, there's a thing called the restraining grace of God that holds that back. But totally depraved, meaning I, I cannot cause myself to live. I, I, I am helpless. I need God's prompting. I need His regeneration. Is the word. I need His new birth. Salvation by grace alone also means unconditional election. That God from eternity past has chosen to save a great many sinners. 
so many that no one of us can count. Also means believing in particular redemption. That Christ took the judgment for the sin of those whom He chose upon Himself and thereby paid for their lives with His death. In other words, Jesus didn't simply make salvation possible. He actually obtained it. It actually happened. Also believe that God's grace is irresistible. So if you believe that man has fallen, and and in his state he resists God's love, but what we believe though is that the grace of God working in his heart makes him desire what he had previously resisted. It means there is nothing, not even man or woman's sinful heart, can be more powerful than God's grace. Nothing. I mean, isn't that, you think about how that works then out as you're walking with the Lord and you see your sinfulness. In that moment, you should believe in irresistible grace that not only was His grace irresistible to save you, but to continue saving you. There is no pit of sin of which God's grace cannot rescue you from. I also believe in the perseverance of the saints. That God protects His saints from falling away. And His grace is more sufficient. Again, it goes deeper than any hole that you and I might dig. And thus salvation is everlasting. Now this distinguishes us from probably most churches out there. Where man is viewed as basically good and just needs a little help from Jesus to be all that he can be. That gives birth to a brand of Christianity where the preacher often sounds more like Dr. Phil than Jesus. There was a uh, a great song called Election by uh, Shai Lin where he says, uh, you, you weren't just drowning in the ocean and needed a life preserver thrown to you. That's kind of the good man who just needs a little help. He says in there, you're more like a swollen corpse at the bottom of the ocean floor, and God dove all the way to the bottom to rescue you. I just think, just even how much more of a glorious and praiseworthy picture like that, that is than this man-centered, he just needs a little help, kind of a self-help brand of Christianity. But it also distinguishes us from churches with sermons that predominantly begin with poor you. Let me show you that Jesus is better. Let me give you three points on why you should have warm fuzzies about Jesus. Instead, we're, we're wretched, hopeless sinners who have an amazing, marvelously gracious and merciful and just God who has bought our redemption and our eternal hope. Salvation by grace alone. Next, lordship advancement. Lordship advancement. To mean to be reformed. I'm going to have to move a little quicker unless we're going to be here for a long time. Matthew, 8, Matthew 28, verse 20 says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus, this is in the Great Commission that many of us are familiar with. 
Couple that with Ephesians 1.10, first part, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And there's all this footstool language and all this lordship language you need to understand is in this context. Listen, we are to advance the lordship of Jesus. That's what it means to teach people how to obey all that Christ has commanded. You obey a Lord. That's what he's telling us in the Great Commission is to advance the lordship of Jesus, to teach them He is Lord, and to teach them all that the Lord has said, and to teach them how to obey Him as Lord. Listen, the key to true obedience is only through the gospel of this Lord. It's repentance and faith in His salvific work. This means we should have an emphasis as a church on discipleship and not just evangelism. Meaning conversions or professions of faith is not where it stops, but it continues on into discipleship. Christ's rulership, right? All things, a footstool to Jesus. That means we are not just a people getting by till he returns, but we are a people who live in a way that brings his lordship to reality now. We do that. How? By believing the Great Commission and actually doing it. By making disciples of Jesus and holding pagans accountable to Jesus. Which brings me to a particular point here of distinction. When we think about politics and culture, there is a crucial dividing line amongst churches, particularly in America, on what it looks like to engage the culture. Many churches, even supposedly Reformed churches, believe that the only realm the church should speak to is the spiritual. The spiritual. Tell me how to get to heaven. Tell me how to have a good quiet time. And how to think happy thoughts about Jesus. Everything else is off limits. Stay quiet. Leave the political issues to voting and politicians and matters of the conscience. Leave the social issues to secularists and progressives. Leave the workplace alone. It's a matter of the conscience. And then, if the church happens to speak into these issues, you better at least be nice. No, no mean tone, okay? We got to be winsome, they say. So we meaning us elders, wholeheartedly and cheerfully reject this garbage. We believe that the lordship of Jesus should reign over the entire earth, every last square inch. In my little half-acre property, in your workplace, in this neighborhood, in this city, this country, and this world. We believe if he is lord over it all, then he has something to say about all of it. Next, the sacraments. Reformed people have a covenant understanding of baptism, meaning that it replaces circumcision and signifies covenantal relationship with our Heavenly Father. That it's not salvific. Baptism does not save us. It's a symbol, but it's a symbol of something specific. It's a symbol of a covenantal relationship with the Father. The Lord's Supper, the other sacrament, it's a memorial, but also a sign and seal of the covenant. 
It's a, we're remembering that every week. Remembering that we are bought by the blood and welcomed into the covenant with Jesus. That we are sealed by that blood that we dip that bread into. Also believe that the sacraments should be only administered in the context of the gathered church and the proclamation of the word. Under the authority of Christ's church. These are not things that we can just go do willy-nilly on our own. You see this as we, as we practice communion each week, there are regularly warnings. It's called fencing the table. Where we say, do not come if you're not walking in repentance. What's happening there? It's the church governing who partakes for the purity of the church and for the good of the hearers. Next, gathered worship. The gathered worship of God's people. We believe the Scriptures regulate this. We believe the Scriptures regulate the gathered worship of God's people. This is distinct from a couple things. It's distinct from emotionally regulated worship, where if it makes people feel good or feel spiritual or feel in love with Jesus, then we should do it. Or numbers regulated worship, where if it attracts people and gets them into seats, then we must do it because it's contextually appropriate, apparently. But instead, the Scriptures regulate worship, the gathered worship service of God's people. It's probably going to look more formal and organized, focused on prayer, emphasis on reading the Scriptures, preaching as the focal point, sacraments, singing. Now listen, this isn't void of emotion. This isn't void of emotion. Instead, it's quite the opposite. It's full of emotion. It's just full of emotion that's guided by the Scriptures and not your hormone levels or what you ate for breakfast. I don't know about you, but mine can be all over the place, right? I ate something bad for breakfast. Now I feel terrible. I was explaining to my mom the other day that if, if I eat something like particularly spicy the night before, the next day I will have this internal feeling that feels a lot like depression. That's a real thing. And I have to remind myself, oh, I ate that last night. That's why I feel this way today. I'm not depressed. My body feels that way. So it's not worship that's, that's void of emotion, but full of rightly guided, scripturally governed emotion that is rich and deep. So we're reformed. We're also confessional. What do we mean by confessional? I'm going to rattle off some things here. You're not going to write them down by any means, but um, that means we would hold as elders very closely, maybe not without exception, to the following confessions, written statements of belief, if you will. The London Baptist Confession of 1689, the Westminster Confession, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, or more modern statements like the Nashville Statement on Gender, the Danvers Statement on Manhood and Womanhood, the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel, or the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. I would encourage you to go read those. They would all be very edifying to your soul. Those are confessions. We're confessional. 
Let me read to you John 16, verse 18, 8 through 15 again. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things, Jesus speaking, right? I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will desire, um, declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see three usages in these couple verses where the Spirit's not going to come up with his own thing. He's going to bring what is Jesus's and declare it. He's going to come and take what is Jesus and enact it and declare. The first part of this passage is the enacting of it. The second part is the declaring. He says he's going to convict the world. So there's some sort of objective moral truth that the world is going to be judged based upon. So he's going to come and enact that judgment. And he's going to declare the truth. These actions are related to the words I said earlier. Objective, declarative, outside of us. It's part of what it means to be confessional. See, the Christian faith, historical, biblical Christianity, is is founded upon the objective and declarative realities of Jesus. Namely, Jesus' work in the place of sinners. But that's not just the cross. That's His work from Genesis to Revelation. Those are all objective, declarative realities of Jesus that are important for God's people. And those works are to be believed and declared. Let's talk about objective. This idea of objective, it's important. It's important in our day because we live in a culture of ruling subjectivity. And, and I'm going to try to present this in a way where you see where it's probably crept into your own heart, okay? So I'm going to get there. Just give me a second. But in our culture, more broadly, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Right? You can have your truth. I can have my truth. Of course, that's kind of gone now. It's more like you have to have the progressive's truth. I mean, that's, that's what you have to have. You have to eat that, swallow it, celebrate it, the whole thing. It's where we're at now. It started out with your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. We just leave each other alone. Or another example is that your feelings are authoritative. Listen, I've heard this many times. Well, I just feel that way. And that said, it's declared as though that's the end-all statement. Like, done, conversation over, you can't challenge me. Or how about our subjective understanding of our experience? Believing that is authoritative. Again, that's the way I experienced it. You can't question that. Our culture even believes that objective reasoning is a tool of oppression. Well, you're just manipulating me with your objective reasoning. 
But objective, what is objective, is conviction based on truth. That two plus two equals four. Hopefully we all believe that. If you don't, I have a beachfront property in Cleveland for you. It's full of beautiful blue water. God's righteousness is A, but man has done B through Z. And the Spirit tells us that the ruler of this world and those who have followed him have been judged and will be judged. This is truth, it's objective. He is the Spirit of truth. He's going to come declare the truth from the one he received it from, which is Jesus. And he has spoken this truth through his word. We are to be people of the truth and truth that is objective. Wanting to know the truth in every situation. It doesn't mean we need to know all the truth. God has not revealed all truth to us. But he's revealed truth that is important for us to know. It also means that we're to be confessional, or if, we, if we're to be confessional, then we should stay away from those who do not speak the truth. In fact, we should fight against those who would not speak the truth. But, but here is our promise, and this is where I'm kind of trying to just dig down into the wound a little further here. Our problem for many of us is not so much about knowing the truth with our heads. The problem is that at the end of the day, it's more about how we feel about the truth than, whether, than what we know to be true. Some of us can stare the facts right in the face, but because our emotions are like a flag in the tumultuous winds of evil cunningness, we can stare the facts in the face and deny the objectivity, the objectiveness. So we can look at the facts, but at the end of the day, it's going to come down to, for many of us, how I feel about those facts. Does that feel acceptable? Does that feel right? Listen, we all know, you, you all hopefully know what I'm talking about. But, well, but, 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 but my spouse will say or do this, but my kids won't like me. But my friends believe this. But I have this pit in my stomach. That's not what it means to be confessional. That's what it means to be emotional. Confessional is this is true. And I wanted to tell my emotions to get in line. And then probably have to give it space and time for my emotions to get in line. It's not just objective, it's also outside of us. It's outside of us. Meaning these truths stand outside of us and are not dependent on us not dependent on our interpretation. They're not dependent on our experience. They are not affected by us. They stand as truth outside of us, regardless of whether or not we recognize it as such. Thank God, right? 
There, there are many days where my thoughts, my emotions do not believe what is true. And thank God that when I get done harassing them with my terrible emotions and my wrong thoughts, that they still stand true regardless of what I've done with them for the day. Thank God I can return to them tomorrow and they are unchanging. Again, this is important because we're taught in our day to look inside yourself for truth. If you feel it, it is so. Listen, our, our culture right now believes, and what's being imported into the church in many ways, is that you are most morally good when you are most true to what you sense or feel inside. Just let it go. Don't be held back anymore. I mean, you understand that whole movie is about that point. That the best truth you can live by is what's inside. Instead, he says here, the spirit who is outside of you, uh, certainly is the spirit, I'm not saying, I'm not denying the indwelling of the spirit here, but the spirit will come. He resides also outside of you. He will declare it. And his declaration is not a suggestion. His de declaration is a matter of fact. This is what it is, and it is nothing else. I would encourage you, if you want to know the Spirit's declaration, all you have to do is read your Bible. Which leads us to my final point here. We should declare it. That's what it means to be confessional. We don't just say things. That's not what confessional means. It doesn't mean we just get up and say things and make sure you say lots of things. But what you say is objective. That it's outside of us. It comes from God's Word. It mimics the Spirit's declaration. And that we actually say it. That we go do likewise. We're Christ followers. We declare all that Jesus has said. That's what the, he's saying in the Great Commission. Go and teach all that I've commanded. How do you do that? You speak it. You declare it. All that Jesus has commanded. This includes the narrow points of the gospel of salvation. Life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, the justification for our sins. It means that. But it means all that Jesus has commanded. Every bit of it. And that's a glorious thing for you, for your family, for your workplace. We help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all. That's what it looks like to declare it. We have objective truths that we hold on to. We should confess them to each other. We should confess them when we wake up. You ever made a habit of that or tried making a habit of that? Like before you even roll out of bed, what truths should I confess to myself right now? Kind of like your own catechism. Like what should I say that I need to believe today that I know I'm struggling to believe? We should confess them to our children. We should confess these truths to them and teach them how to live by them. This is historical biblical Christianity at its core, reformed, confessional, as I've just outlined before. In the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about three more distinctives. I'll, I'll try and stay away from as many big words as 
we engaged in today. But the same question I asked at the end of last week's sermon, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? What do we do with this? Well, first, we begin with faith and trust and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we go from here. That's always the first step. Faith and trust and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. We turn from our wicked ways to His gracious redemption. Some of us need to turn away from the novel ways in which we've tried to mold Christianity to fit our own preference or modern context in our own lives. Places where we've tried to mold it into something a little more palatable for the day. And confess that to the Lord. Someone said this, those who listen and obey Jesus' teaching will be able to stand when the storms come. But those who refuse to listen to Jesus' teaching will be swept away. There is no ambiguity or middle ground. There are those who listen and those who refuse to listen. Listen, all of us, end of the quote, listen, all of, all of us will at some point be faced with a storm. Some of you are living in a storm right now. Some of you live with a storm. And those who refuse to listen to the Scriptures, being grounded in historical and biblical Christianity and all that that means, will be swept away. The New Testament uses words like being tossed to and fro when the storms come. So if we're going to be believe and have a distinctive of historical biblical Christianity, then, then we need to know the Scriptures. That we should confess that which is true, is outside of ourselves, objective. It is the normative. And we should confess and repent for when we don't. And the beautiful thing, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Right? And to lead us into all righteousness. And we say to the Lord, we're yours. Lead us in your kingdom. Listen, church, and I mean this with, with the depths of my soul. I'm so thankful to be a pastor at a church where the mass of people are those who listen to Jesus and are able to stand when the storm comes. I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for the Lord's work in you. But it doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop with, I think some, many of us have this idea that it's more like, how can I just get by until Jesus returns? John Bunyan said this, Religion that is pure is a hot thing, and it usually burns the fingers of those that fight against it. Historical biblical Christianity is a hot thing. That's why it's still here. Because it fights against the world. Historical biblical Christianity is not just about survival. Listen, our eternal life is secured and sealed. Death will not be the end of us. But true Christianity is about all things being a footstool to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Through repentance and faith in His life, death, resurrection, and ascension.
Let's pray. Dear Father, may we be a people that's not looking for the next best thing, that doesn't come to church for the next best emotion, or doesn't leave and read the next quote for the next best thought, or let us not be a people who just live to survive until you return, and let us not be a people that just cares about the spiritual. Let us be a people that that doesn't settle for confessing lies or for chasing after the whims of this world, but be a people rooted deeply in your Scriptures. Taking your Word for what it says and not twisting it. And then confessing it as such, as ones who believe it. Father, our souls were created to live and walk in communion with your truth that comes from your character and a true follower of yours will hear that voice and will follow. So Father, I pray that Christ the Lord Church would be a church full of and growing with people who believe and hold to historical, biblical Christianity and all that that means. As it means even more than what we've said today. I ask all these things, that this would be true of us, for your glory, for the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.